Thanks for joining us for the Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Peter Singer, Strategist and Senior Fellow at New America. And I'm Sarah Sorcher, Deputy Editor of Passcode, the Christian Science Monitor's new section on security and privacy in the digital age. We think the most important and most interesting part of the cybersecurity story is the people behind the keyboard. On the Cybersecurity Podcast, we'll interview key leaders and thinkers in the field, going beyond the headlines to talk about some of the most pressing trends and newest ideas. We've actually got two Chris's for you on this episode. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Chris Weisopel, also known as Weld Pond in the hacker community. He's an entrepreneur, computer security expert, and chief technology officer of Vericode. But first, we're joined by Chris Young. He's general manager of Intel Security. Formerly from Cisco, VMware, and RSA, Chris leads Intel's security business across its hardware and software platforms. I caught up with Chris when he was in D.C. for a business trip. We talked about the coming trends in 2016, the booming Internet of Things, and his idea for a cyber national guard. Thank you so much, Chris, for being here. Happy to have you. Great to be here. Thanks, Sarah. So Intel Security is a huge cybersecurity operation, and you're protecting tons of companies' networks. Why don't you start by telling us just one major threat that you and your customers are seeing this past year? So Intel Security not only protects companies, we also protect you know government agencies as well as consumers. We have literally over 100 million consumers around the world that we protect as well. And I will tell you, one of the threats that's rising the fastest right now is something you call ransomware. Um, <clears throat> in fact, we saw year on year, just in the third quarter of 2015 this year, um, we saw about 127% increase in the number of you know, different types of ransomware that's out there. Why do you think that is? I think there's a couple things driving it. Uh, one is the ability for the, the attackers themselves to be anonymous. So in fact, you've seen the rise of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, which is how these guys ultimately get paid. Because what they do is they basically get you to, to uh, install a piece of malware on your machine if you're a user. This, you could be a consumer or someone working in, a, in an enterprise. They then say, well, they encrypt the files on that machine and then ask for a ransom. So $300 is the t- typical kind of going rate for the ransomware. If you don't pay it, you don't get the, the keys back and you don't get your data back. Uh, and that's sort of the that's the the quid pro quo from the attacker's perspective. So three hundred dollars for a major company doesn't seem like necessarily it would be that big of an expenditure if you're a you know a, a certain size company. So should people just pay that, or is there some sort of downside? Do you get you know sucked into more and more ransom down the line? Well, first of all, there's no guarantee that you know they, that everything will be decrypted although at, at you know it's a business so these these guys are trying to make money out of mm-hmm. you know sort of selling you the ability to decrypt your information i think for for businesses it's much more uh, it's much more of a concern uh, that you know the ransomware might affect operations than actually you know the the information on an individual machine hmm. so i think for a lot of consumers for the individual person you're, yeah, you're weighing the the issue of do I have to do I want to pay three hundred dollars for my the photographs and the files that are on my machine? But for a business, you know what you may be concerned with is hey, I've got a I've got an operation that's now being threatened by you know the, the I can't run because I've got this ransomware that's now made its way into my environment. So I think it's 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 less of an issue of cost and it's more of an issue of the complexity and the headaches of going through this and. I'll tell you, it's a real industry. We've seen, we just released a, a white paper uh, through a group that we participate in called the Cyber Threat Alliance. And that Cyber Threat Alliance paper, we 
tracked uh, the Bitcoin accounts that we know to be associated with ransomware. Mm-hmm. And then the numbers are pretty, pretty big. It's about $325 million worth of Bitcoin oh, wow. going into those accounts to pay those ransoms. So it's a big it's a big issue and it cuts across consumers and businesses alike. So when something like this comes up with customers of yours, do you tell them to pay it? It's an individual decision, right? So I, it depends on what's the asset that's being attacked. Is it, you know, files you don't care about or is it, you know, machines that you really need to run and operate? So it's an, it comes back to an individual choice, but it's a risk, right? You know, whether you pay or not is really up to the level, yeah. basically up to the risk that you individually face. And so what's one thing that people can do to be less vulnerable to ransomware? Oh, there's a lot you can do, right? You, you sh- First of all, you got to be, you should, you know, go back to, you know, basic security practices. So you should have up to date, you know, antivirus, you should have um, because, you know, we're blocking a lot of this, but when people don't actually run security software on their on their their machines, they're going to be more vulnerable. You should patch your systems as well, because, you know, just like any malware, these crypto wall programs or ransomware programs take advantage of uh, unpatched software. And then the third one is, you know, just be careful of what you click on. Be careful what websites you go to. It's back to the same old, you know, they, these guys are using phishing methodology. They're using mm-hmm. malicious websites. So you be careful what you do. That can go a long way in terms of better upfront protection against the problem. And what about just backing up your data? I mean, is that another, if it's somewhere else, is that still as vulnerable? Backing up your data is even better, right? Because it protects you. Again, it's not only, it doesn't necessarily only manifest itself as a data problem, but if you've got data backed up, mm-hmm. it's, you know, then you don't have to worry about paying the ransom because you've already got it somewhere else. I mean, we're around the, the new year here and we talked a little bit about the trends in terms of threats, but what about in terms of cybersecurity trends? I mean, do you see people turning to to vendors more so in 2016 or even you know automation or analytics as to weed out some of the information that's coming their way what's you know maybe one or two things that you can point to that you're going to see more of this coming year I think in 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 the coming year you're going to see customers do a couple of things one there's going to be a much heavier focus on automation traditionally the security products that most customers run in their environment they don't talk to each other you know you're your endpoint security doesn't talk to your firewall. And those those products need to share intelligence, even intra-organization mm-hmm. in, in many cases. So that I think you're going to see a lot more automation. And that's one area that we've been working pretty heavily with a lot of our, you know, kind of our partners and our customers is try to get more intelligence sharing between and among the products themselves kind of operating on the ground. That's number one. I think number two, you're going to see customers put more of a premium on trying to understand the threat intelligence that they've got available to them, um, whether they're using analytics or whether they're asking their vendors to give, you know, again, move away from kind of raw data to better, I would say, more well analyzed and interpreted threat intelligence. I think that's going to be another big trend. Mm-hmm. The other big trend we're going to see in 2016, and you're starting to see this now, I think you're going to see more of a focus on assets as opposed to on data. I mean, if you think about it, the evolution of our industry. 10 years ago, we cared about hobbyists. The last five years, we've cared a lot about data breaches. I think we're going to start to think more about asset protection. What do you mean by asset protection? Like, so an attack coming in and really shutting down an operation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that, that's the next wave of threats that we're going to see as we connect industrial environments and that kind of thing. It's, it's, the risk there is not that they steal information about individuals. The risk is that attackers could actually 
could cripple a specific like a, an, an operation. And I think as we connect more devices, we talked about Internet of Things earlier. You and I did a little bit. You start to move into the realm of physical safety, mm-hmm. right? You know what what happens when you know you can we've connected cars and they're attackable. Those are real issues that we're starting to work on uh, as an industry. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. In the Internet of Things, there's supposed to be some 50 billion devices connected by 2020. And you hear about, you know, it's not just smart watches, but, you know, smart baby monitors and home entry systems and alarms and um, cars and everything like that and things that we can't even imagine now at this point. So what is the consequence of having so many devices and what happens if they're not built with security in mind? Uh, so there's there's risk. As we connect more experiences, not just devices, but the actual experience associated with these devices, so the, the devices, the applications, the data associated with them, you do create more surface area for attack. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that you know the Internet of Things is really a mega trend. And then I think you got to get down into specific industries if you want to if you want to make sense of what that means from a security perspective. But at, at a top level, you've got to design the right security model for the sort of the experience you're trying to drive. Like so, for example, if you're trying to protect a home, you know, a connected you know, a set of home appliances like baby monitors and Toasters. The, the toaster, the refrigerator, the <laughs> yeah. Nest thermostat, that kind of thing. That's one set of security requirements, which might be different than security requirements for connected vehicles, right? Because the attacks are going to be different. The way you would go about dealing with the attacks are different. So yes, you want to build security in, but you got to get to the next level of detail to understand what that means. So is that that differentiation also based on the potential consequences? I mean, we had Chris Valasek on our podcast a few months ago, and you know he was able to wirelessly hack a car while someone was driving on the highway, and then you know, but then some people also say if you hack a toaster, who cares? Maybe they burn your bread or whatever. But they also could use it as an attack service to for something else in your home. I mean, does it matter you know, what the actual consequences are, people's safety, or is that does that get more ambiguous because it is you know, an internet threat? The potential consequences always matter. So to, for me to say that they don't matter, it wouldn't be the, the right way to, to think about it. But the problem is the unintended consequences. So not saying that, okay, because it's a toaster, I don't care about the security, potentially puts you in a situation where you, you open up an attack vector, you open up a vulnerability that you might not have thought about uh, mm-hmm. at the beginning. So what I see, though, is a model that we're going to move to in security that's much more about controlling the devices themselves. And this is back to your point about building security in from the from the beginning. You know, f- we built PCs, for example, and, and you know, our traditional computing devices as kind of open systems where, you know, the user could install any software that software that they wanted on the devices. We then put browsers on these machines and browsers have tons of different plugins. So you can install a lot of different types of software. That flexibility is a flexibility that the, the attackers take advantage of in, in their world. But as we get to devices that are more purpose-built, like a thermometer, you know, like or a thermostat rather, sorry, or a, a car or an or an appliance in one's home, you don't need to install a bunch of other types of software on that. So there are tools that we can use to, to basically control what could run on those devices. And there's no reason in, in, you know, that I can see why we wouldn't uh, create more lockdown experiences for those kinds of purpose-built devices 
which we couldn't do in a world where of you know traditional computers because that's not what the user needed. But so, in this new world, you can do that. So whose responsibility is it then to make sure that these devices are secure? Are we going to see people downloading you know security updates for their refrigerator, or is it going to be something that people who make these devices or, you know, who eventually might have to update them are going to have to do? Yeah, it'll be it'll be the the, the, manufa- the, the manufacturer, right? Because, you know, as we connect more of these devices, you know, what you're seeing the, the business model turn into is that you know, there's a service associated with it. Like, so you, you don't connect a device just so it can be connected. You connect it so that there's kind of some ability to update it. It's smarter. It gives you some kind of data or suggestion like your refrigerator you want it to tell you when the temperature is too high or low or if you're going to run out of milk or something like that so there's a service aspect to this and if there's going to be a service aspect to it security should and updating it from a security perspective should be part of that and therefore it's the responsibility of the service provider to to bring that along with it and i think if you Mm -hmm. look at what's going on even in our classic world with pcs and, and and computers that we use a lot of the operating systems now, a lot of like they update, you know, pretty much automatically. All you have to do is say yes, and you'll get the updates. And that's the that's the kind of model we have to move towards. Where you know, you're it may be a little bit of an annoyance to to update and and patch, you know, kind of the vulnerabilities that are there. But man, you're crazy not to do it. Speaking of companies' responsibilities, we're right now in the middle of the encryption debate, and. Uh, you have U.S. law enforcement intelligence agencies who are saying that companies have a responsibility to be able to comply with warrants that they get in a court to be able to access data. And then you have privacy advocates and tech pros who say that companies have a responsibility to do the best thing that they can to keep their consumers' security and privacy safe and as protected as possible from hackers. What do you think about this now, especially you have the Paris attacks, which you know reignited this debate that's going on now between the tech sector and, and the government? What is the role of encryption in terms of protecting consumers or, you know, the balance between consumer security and national security? Yeah, I think the first thing we have to do is get specific about what we're trying to accomplish and then what what we mean when we say, you know, the role of encryption. Because I think that in some ways we've conflated a variety of different topics when we start to talk about encryption and there's multiple issues we're talking about. I think there's law enforcement, you know, classic kind of someone's committed a crime Mm -hmm. and then I need, and there's there's a cyber element to it and law enforcement needs to be able to deal with that. So do you think that companies should have to have a way to be able to turn over data if law enforcement has a warrant? I think if you're, if you're in a situation where you actually, so I think the debate isn't really about that, right? I think the debate that, that we're seeing right now is more about who has access to the information, you know, and, and should companies actually retain keys? You know, mm-hmm. that's kind of been where we've focused a lot of right. our, a that lot would of be the, a way. the public debate about it. That, that would be, that would be a way. My point is that you can't say that, it, that encryption is a ubiquitous concept. And frankly, encryption is something that most companies today, um, it's a tool set that companies are using. So, you know, you're, you know, right now we're focusing our, our debate around, you know, whether we should encrypt data going out over the wire and we should be looking a little bit more broadly at, you know, what are we trying to accomplish? And then what, what are the different ways in which we can go about accomplishing that as opposed to saying, okay, every company should keep encryption keys, mm-hmm. you know, the and, and obviously it's not in anyone's interest to weaken security on devices. And so that's, that's like kind of where we seem to be caught up. But I think the reason we're caught up as a little bit in 
between maybe private sector and public sector in this case mm-hmm. is that we're not specific enough about what we're trying to accomplish when and and whose responsibility then it becomes once we're specific about what we're trying to do. So where do you see the trend going on encryption in the future? I mean, do you think it, it's going to just become increasingly advanced, increasingly widespread, as FBI Director Comey talks about? And if that is the case, and there is a world where, you know, what he calls warrantless encryption exists, I mean, what does that mean for law enforcement investigating cyber crimes? Are you sympathetic at all to that? Well, today, encryption is already pretty much available to anyone who wants it, right? Mm-hmm. There's no, like, developers can get access to free encryption toolkits like it's it's not it doesn't cost any developer any money really to to get access to encryption tools so you know that i would say that horse has already left the barn you know the, the encryption is out there it's a usable tool and, and technology for anyone who develops software or hardware you know any technology product that is consumable today you know and that that's something that's available to developers all over the world too it's not actually something that's bound by you know different countries and and the laws that we have here in the US or or elsewhere so i think to some degree like we're already we're already faced with that that challenge of of encryption is is available it's usable it is already part of many different aspects of the technology stack and and i don't see us like i don't see a world where we move away from that or move back to you know some less encrypted world uh that that most of us are going to live in so i i don't even really know that i think we have to start to look okay how are things going to be in the future and then how do we live in that world as opposed to how do we rewind the clock and try to imagine the world we'd like to have which is just not going to happen right technology it's like life like technology just advances and and we have to learn to deal with that and frankly, we're kind of behind in, in a hmm. lot of regards. And that's something that, that affects us in a variety of different ways. So this has become an issue that's divided the tech sector and the government. And another issue that you're seeing some competition in a different way is the competition for talent. And so how do you see the tech industry and government, you know, despite all of these issues like encryption and sometimes info sharing and other things, coming together to make sure that they both get the talent that they need. I mean, I've heard that you have a some yes. interesting thoughts on this topic. Instead of fighting about encryption, I think this is one we could actually get to an agreement on really quickly, which is we need to train more cybersecurity professionals. It's it's the reason we're having a war for talent is it's a shortage. It's completely a supply and demand problem, like mm-hmm. economics 101. There's just not enough talented men and women that are out there who really are trained who understand technology enough, who understand cybersecurity well enough, such that they can go into the ranks of the government, into into private sector organizations. And so one of the things that I've talked about in a couple of different forums is, hey, why don't we establish like a cyber corps or even in some cases like a cyber national guard where the government would on on mass really create opportunities for you know, either men and women coming out of high school or coming out of college to train in cyber. And they could then obviously they can either work in the government or they could work in private sector. They could do some combination of both. But it, it creates a, a broad, a much bigger influx of talent into the population that we need. And I think that will then bring down some of the, the constraint on the demand for these, these types of people. And that's something that 
historically in our country, we've done an awesome job of when we put our mind to these kinds of cyber core ty- or these not cyber core, but these kind of kind of programs. We, we we do really interesting things, and I think this is another opportunity that we're faced with. So say more about that. Would this be someone who's maybe working in the private sector and wants to go and give his weekends or a year or something to the government, or is this something where you know it's more of a reserve component? They're called in if there's something big happens. I mean, happening. I mean, it's just an interesting concept because when you do think about the contingencies that the government and the military is preparing for cybersecurity is clearly one of the you know, biggest challenges that's on their radar. Yeah, so I think that that that's one idea. I think another idea would be more more really just almost like with the Peace Corps, where you go serve and you do this for a, a year or two years or X number of years, you know, either after high school or after college. It could be a government-sponsored program, but it's a hmm. lot. Like the the difference between having government do it and having private sector do it is, it's a mass market thing when the government does it, and you can really move the needle in terms of, you know, tens of thousands of people kind of getting this training. Then they could stay in government, maybe go into the military, go into law enforcement, or they can go into the private sector. They could then become the foundation, and then what, what you've just the model you just talked about is is almost a different model, but certainly not necessarily unrelated, which is you could have almost like a, a, a National Guard type of model where they could go and serve you know, part-time to work on cybersecurity-related issues, um, or they could be, like you say, they could be called up, just like if you sign up for the National Guard, you, know, you get some benefit to it, you get training, you get some compensation, but then you know, you're also willing to respond when, when something goes wrong, and that's... Uh, the quid pro quo there, but I think I think you can do both. I think this this notion of to, to get to the training level that we need, I think we need this kind of more like Peace Corps like program mm-hmm. where you you know you bring you you encourage tens of thousands of young men and women either out of high school or out of college out of college to come and join this program. They do work right. That's that's got a civic element to it. But then they're trained now and they've got opportunities that would be both public sector and private sector in nature. Yeah, it's definitely really interesting to think about. Thank you so much for joining us. Very Thanks, happy Sarah. to have you. Thanks, Chris, for joining us. Up next, we have the other Chris, Chris Weisopel. He joins us from Burlington, Massachusetts, where he's the co-founder and chief technology officer at Veracode. That's an application security company. And Chris is also well-known in the hacker community. With the nom de keyboard Weld Pond, he was part of the hacker collective Loft in the 1990s. Thanks so much for joining us, Chris. Thanks for having me. So let's actually start there. Back in 1998, you were one of the Loft members who testified before a Senate committee about the Internet's insecurities. And actually, one of your cohorts pointed out on the panel that any one of you could bring down the Internet in 30 minutes. So what do you think? Could some of the widespread security issues that we still see today have been avoided if action had been taken back then? And if you could envision some sort of alternate reality, what should policymakers or really anybody who heard those warnings back then have done about this? Yes, yeah, so a lot of the changes that could have happened, you know, would take many, many years. You know, it kind of famously took Microsoft like a decade to get its house in order the way they were building software to start actually putting out secure products. So it takes a long time to change some of these things like the internet protocol, the internet standards. But And I think they would have taken 5, 10, 15 years. But if we had started taking action back then, we'd be living in a, in a, in a more secure um, place. Um, it seems like there has been really very little change you know, from the regulation government standpoint really in the last, you know, 15, 17 years since then. Um, there's been very little little change. I mean, we just saw the cybersecurity sharing um, mm-hmm. law take, you know, go into effect last, you know, 
get passed in December. So I think that there could have been changes, but because it takes so long to, for these things to take effect, there's, there's little motivation to, to, to do them unless there's sort of a catastrophe and something has to be done. I like to use the example of the Great Chicago Fire. Um, we built wood structures right up against each other in, in cities. You could see how that would be a bad thing when one building caught on fire, all the other buildings caught on fire. It took the Great Fire of Chicago for them to start requiring brick firewalls between buildings. And that's kind of where we get the term firewall from. Um, and it obviously took decades to rebuild the city in the secure way or in the safer way. And that's that's what I think it's going to take for security to get better. It's going to take a long time, but someone's got to start. So you had people back then saying we could take down the internet in 30 minutes. Why didn't they? Why, why didn't you do that? I mean, think of all the wonderful, you know, harms you could have prevented everything from, you know, no more ISIS propaganda online to millions of people being saved from Rick Rolls. I mean, why, why didn't these warnings of cyber Pearl Harbor that were being testified at that hearing, why didn't they happen? Yeah, we, the, the senators actually asked us that question. They're like, well, why don't you do it? Or why doesn't someone else do it? And, and typically, it's the people who have the capability to do it don't want to do it, right? Um, you don't want to take down the internet if you want to manipulate the internet for propaganda or you want to uh, break into your adversary's computer. The internet is the conduit for you to do more interesting things. And just taking it down isn't really that interesting. It was interesting when it was Donald Trump was saying, he said two conflicting things. He said, we have to eliminate ISIS from the internet and we have to attack ISIS through cyber means. It's like, well, you can't do both, right? If you cut people off from the internet, you can't then attack them. So we as hackers, we wanted to explore the internet, right? We wanted to understand it. So why would we take it down? That would be taking down something which was our playground that we wanted to explore. And if you think about people who have the capability to do this today, nation states can certainly do it. They don't want to take down the internet. They want to use the internet. That's a good opportunity to jump to um, the international side of things. There was recently, and it's somewhat in um, debate right now, but uh, a cyber attack on the Ukrainian power grid, uh, which either the cause or the slowed down reaction to it, bringing the mm -hmm. power back online, is being blamed on Russia and or Russian-linked hackers what do you make of this? And what are some of the lessons that you think we can pull from this and maybe thinking about critical infrastructure? Yeah, so that's a really interesting case because, you know, it's there's a lot of incidents in industrial control systems. I like to look at the DHS, their um, ICS cert, which puts out statistics. And like in the first half of 2015, I think there was 13 cyber incidents that they investigated. So someone called them in, in the electric power companies in the United States last year, and there was 19 at water companies, right? So there's activity there, but we don't usually see it come to the point where the system is actually taken down. So well, I think what that means is there's a lot of reconnaissance going on. There's actually people probing around, learning how they, and, and maybe implanting the capability to take it down when they want to. But here we saw a case where you have act, there's actually you know a war going on, right? And so you have an adversary that might, might want to actually cause some serious harm to Ukraine, or at least send a serious message. And that was the thing that was really interesting about this, not that these systems are vulnerable or there's people probing through the systems that someone actually took action um, or it seems like they took action, whether it was they opened the circuits through cyber means or as you say, they just, once they saw that happen, 
they um, you know sort of caused the reaction to to be slowed down. I know they say they flooded the call centers um, with calls, which is pretty pretty easy to do. The phone system, the international phone system, is completely insecure. So if you control if you control like a telephone switch. You can just fire off phone calls all over the world if you want to. There's really not much security there. Um, it's just basically trust between the different phone operators. And then they they also found this malware, which had the capability to wipe machines. But from what I've been reading on it, it does seem like it is plausible. I mean, that malware got there somehow, right? Someone had a capability of getting it onto that network. It does seem plausible that someone opened the circuits through some sort of you know command and control network. So through a penetration, and that's you know that's sort of the holy grail that attackers are looking for. So when I see that there was 13 incidents at American power companies this year that were reported, I, I wonder if someone's actually you know has that capability elsewhere in the American power grid, and they just mm-hmm. aren't using it. This back and forth between what Sarah was bringing up in terms of you know hearings that you were testifying decades back to what you're doing today, it, it points to actually the interesting career you've had. What advice would you give to someone starting out right now? How do you expect, you know, the role that someone that you're doing today, how do you see that evolving? And also what might someone do to, you know, take on this similar kind of role? Sure. So, you know, things were different back then. Um, They're always different. It's back always then. <laughs> different, right? So if we're going back, you know, 15 to 20 years, um, there wasn't really a uh, the, the term security researcher hadn't been coined when 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 we were when we were doing security research or vulnerability researcher, we just called ourselves hackers, right? So we were breaking software and looking at it and tearing it apart and understanding it, and that was like a hobby outsider activity, right? That was not a profession really. Um, today there are you know thousands of people employed doing this either, you know, sort of in an adversarial way for, you know, for the NSA or the U.S. government or other foreign governments or working for companies building software and systems, right? And uh, either or for hire for, for them. So now it's actually sort of a career. But I think you can take the same path that we took, which is it's largely a self-taught process um, or you can learn from others sort of as an apprenticeship. And that could just be reading how they describe they 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 uh, tear apart software and what tools and techniques did do they use? I mean that's how I learned. I saw other people who had figured this out and watched them do it and do it side by side with them. So um, if you can find someone who who does this and you can intern with them or something like that, that would be that would be a great path. But really, um, the the most important thing is to um, have some basics in um, programming. Right, because you're manipulating software, either whether it's the operating system or the applications themselves, um, or even if you're interested in breaking an Internet of Things. I mean, it's looking at the firmware that's controlling it, right? It's not the electronics as much as the, the code. So uh, learn programming, learn some of the languages that are used in whatever environment you're interested in, you know, attacking C, and C++ is probably the best one because that's what the operating systems are written in and a lot of the important security software is written in. And then um, learn how the system, sort of learn how the system works, right? Hacking is really is understanding how the system works and understanding its deficiencies. So you have to kind of understand how it works. Learning with Linux as an operating system was a really good way. If Once I learned how to use Linux and how it was built, it was a good way to, to learn more. 
And it's interesting tracking your career and the careers of the other people who were in Loft. I mean, you're clearly at Vericode, Space Rogue is at Tenable, and he also writes for Passcode, a lot mm-hmm. of your commentators as well. And Mudge is uh, now running the Cyber Underwriters Laboratory testing organization for computer security and had mm-hmm. positions in government as well. So are you still in touch with them? And how has the Loft community, uh, the Loft group evolved over time? And and how has hacker culture changed since the 1990s? So we still keep in touch. Um, it isn't sort of like, you know, the every uh, seeing people a couple times a week, like it was back in the old days. So it's more just through email. But, you know, we're all sort of on our own separate paths. Christian Ryu, who went by Dildog, is, was also one of the co-founders at Veracode. So I work with him very closely still today. But, you know, we, we keep in touch. You know, we run into each other when we all go to, you know, DEF CON or something like that. And I think, you know, we're still mostly along sort of the same, the same mindset that we, that, that, we, that we had back then. We're just sort of taking different approaches to sort of apply it to, to our careers. I mean, me and Christian, our idea is uh, we want people to have more secure software. Well, let's write some tools to help them do that, help them test it. And that's how we feel we can make a difference. But that was part of the threat of the loft was like, it was educational, it was consumer advocacy. It was, it was, to, it was to make a difference. And uh, we've all taken different paths to do that. How would you describe the relationship between the security research community and government, there's this you know anecdote from back in the day of Richard Clark when he was you know White House uh, counterterrorism coordinator going up to Boston and visiting and being mm-hmm. a little bit shocked by who you all were, but in turn you uh, you know you're going it's kind of good to have a friend like this in the White House. What's the difference today? Because this is obviously you know a point of uh, a lot of conversation and concern in terms of the broader community's relation with government. So at at the time, you know, the hacker community was like, look, these guys are sellouts, you know, they're buddying up with the White House, and um, they must be working for the government. And um, for us, it was all about, you know, the government needs to be educated on on this topic. Like, if you're going to call someone stupid and doing the wrong thing, that that doesn't really solve any problems, right? You know, being a critic can point things out, but actually educating someone about the right things can help. So that's that's sort of where we were coming from. And I, I think obviously the government continuously needs to engage with the security research community because the research community is always sort of on the bleeding edge. You know, the things things sort of happen at the fringes. They're always the ones that are sort of going after the newest and latest thing. You know, it was a couple of security researchers that hacked a car, right? It wasn't like someone from the auto industry or someone from some government agency that we know of, or like at least let us know about it. So, and the same thing with the Internet of Things, you know, when these devices start proliferating, the security research community is like rabid right on top of this stuff. So there's a lot of information that can be, that can, that the government can learn. But I, you know, to me, the, um, the relationship, you know, got really rocky with the whole, you know, Snowden incident where I think it was uh, Dark Tangent from DEF CON basically said, you know, the NSA is not welcome here. (laughs) Um, We'll we'll come back next year and see, but you're not welcome here. And um, I think that, that, that hurt the relationship a lot. And a lot of people pulled back and said, hey, if I'm just going to, if I'm helping, you know, the government with 
making the world a more secure place, well, the NSA is just going to use that information to make it a, a, a more insecure place for, for some part of the world. And maybe I don't want that. So it, it, is, it has been a challenging relationship even back then and to today. So where do you see that going? Do you see it getting better over time or do you see it becoming more polarized? You know, I think it can get better over time if potentially with, you know, the government being more transparent about about what they're doing and listening more to the research community. You know, like with the whole Wassener agreement, we're seeing them try to listen to the research community um, because they're, you know, they don't want to sort of squash security research. You know, there's so many good things that have, have come out of it. I don't know where we would be if there weren't these thousand or so people have worked over the last 10 years to 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 disclose so much information and um, give us so much understanding of, of the systems that we all use. So uh, I, I know they're listening, but it isn't it doesn't mean that they're going to take any action. And it could really hurt security research if the Wassner agreement you know, gets ratified the way it is. Well, that's reminiscent of what you were saying at the beginning of the conversation, too, that people are listening, but they're not necessarily taking any action and there wasn't anything catastrophic that's fueling that. Do you think that there is going to be some moment where the policymakers or people who are outside of this space start to take proactive steps? Is that uh, to make things more secure? Well, um, to me, sort of the OPM event was sort of a catastrophic event from sort of a, pers- a PII disclosure, right? Like, if you think about... I you can know, personally attest to that. Those happen all the time, <laughs> but that at that scale with that richness of information, fingerprints and background interviews and, and all that, it was it's sort of a worst case scenario. And um, that did seem to have a an effect. Like all of a sudden, everyone was using two-factor authentication within the government within a few months. Right. Presumably, it affects all of them as well. So yeah, I think it so, hits home in a way. But that 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 did have some effect, right? So that act like in in 2015, you're not using two-factor authentication for remote network access. I mean, most of the even startup companies that I talk to have been doing that for years. So it it does take big events like that actually to cause the action. So maybe the talking is good because they can talk and they can listen for a long time and then the event will happen and maybe the, some of the stuff's sunk in and they say, oh, actually, maybe we'll put it into, into action now. So we've hit the side of business. We've hit the White House executive branch. Um, let's talk congressional side of things. You know, we're, we're speaking right now in the wake of the passage of the information sharing bill, for better or for worse. But in many ways, it, it sort of sucked the oxygen out of the room when it came to cybersecurity legislation. And so there's now a new round coming. Um, one of the more recent is the Cybersecurity Disclosure Act. And it's meant to promote transparency and the oversight of cybersecurity risks at public companies, you know, doing everything from requiring companies to reveal basic information about how they're protecting the firm to whether they're members of board, uh, whether board members have cyber expertise. What's your take on this? Yeah, I, I'm a big advocate of more transparency. Um, because if you have more transparency around what security, you know, posture you have and procedures you have, then if an event happens, now we can, you know, the, the, the people affected can, can take action. They can sue you to, if you're liable, if you weren't doing the proper things or if you were doing things that were clearly negligent. Um, and that's what we saw in the Wyndham case, which was finally, um, 
finalized this year with Wyndham Hotels um, found guilty and liable for a breach of PII by the Federal Trade Commission because they weren't basically performing, you know, up to the reasonable expectations of someone who is, you know, basically doing a credit card transaction. Like there's certain things that people are assuming you're doing as part of trade. And if you're not doing those things, then you're found negligent. And they, they really were. And so if we have more transparency of the security posture of a company, then if they do have a breach, they can be found liable for that. And that, that threat of, of liability is what I think can improve security. And, and that's one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that, and I think cyber insurance also, because we haven't seen it happen with any kind of you know, executive branch regulations or any kind of legislation mandating certain things. But you can always fall back on liability. And if there is cyber insurance also, the, si- the insurance companies are going to regulate what that security posture is, whether you get paid out if you have a breach. And we have seen breaches happen and the cyber insurance didn't pay out because they didn't have any security mechanisms in place to prevent the breach. So that's why I like this Cybersecurity so tra- Transparency or Disclosure Act. Because you're it, a fan it, of the legislation. Yeah, I think it's pretty basic stuff, right? Um, all you're doing is disclosing for one thing, right? You're on, um, whether you have board members that have security expertise. And then if you don't have that, um, then you have to explain, you know, what, what, what are you doing since you don't have that? How are you governing the cybersecurity posture of, of your organization if you don't have anyone at the board level who understands it? So anyway, do you think that that will help create an incentive for companies if they have to talk about it just to at least get to the root of the problem? Yeah, I, I, I think so, um, because they're going to have to, I mean, if the law passes, they're going to have to disclose this. And it's not going to look good if there's a breach. You know, you could have a shareholder lawsuit or customer lawsuit saying, you know, they actually disclosed that they were not governing their organization's uh, cyber risk posture, right? And so I think, it, I think it will make a difference because of that. And so this is our first podcast of 2016, and those sound like very interesting opportunities that we might see in the months ahead. What would you say would be the biggest threat or challenge that we might see going into this year? One of the challenges I see is really is the Internet of Things. Um, I'm sure everyone got some internet-enabled device for, for, for Christmas or, 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 or asked for one. And I was just reading today that um, there was some doorbell manufacturer where you could um, just unscrew the top of the doorbell, push a button, and then now you could connect to the doorbell's Wi-Fi and learn the Wi-Fi password of, of the home network. Because really the, the whole purpose of the doorbell is to, is to be connected right? So of course, you're connecting it to your network. And that's just like a, a completely brain dead thing, right? Um, and uh, I think what we're seeing is sort of all these Internet of Things devices come out, and they're essentially come out with a totally insecure posture until a security researcher decides they're interested in that particular device and gives the company a, basically a free pen test and notifies them that the device is insecure. And then hopefully, They'll learn from that lesson, and next time they release a new version or a new product, they'll do something like they got a free version of. I'm not that hopeful for that. But, you know, it it just seems to me that we're going to see a steady stream of these devices, and security just isn't being um, thought of. And people need to understand that it isn't like people don't want to necessarily ring your doorbell, right, or or make it 
look like they're in front of your house. What they want to do is they want to get in onto your network and they want to steal your data, right? Or impersonate you with your, with your bank. I mean, people want to monetize. That's what the attack does. But you can get in through an Internet of Things device. Like that's your gateway into the home network. And so I'm seeing these as a, as a big risk. And I'd like to see something shake out where there's some standards that are start, that, that can get adopted that these manufacturers can sign up to and say, we're, we're doing this security standard. And hopefully, you know, Mudge's cyber underwriter laboratories and maybe some of the things that we can do at Vericode as a third-party tester can, can, can help promote some visibility into what a company did to secure their Internet of Things device. So we really appreciate you joining us. Uh, and we like to end our conversation with all our guests with uh, an easy slash tough question. And okay. it's basically, what's your favorite depiction of this space in the world of fiction, in the world of pop culture? And favorite can be defined as you either love it or you love to hate it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I used to really love the movie Sneakers, um, which came out before Hackers, sort of in the early 90s, and it had a great, you know, great cast with Robert Redford and Sidney Poitier. And, and I thought it was a great depiction of, you know, a band of people that all had slightly different skills and they all pooled them together and they, you know, they broke security systems. And that was, that was fun. And actually at the loft, we kind of looked up to those guys and said, we'd love to have a van like that. We could drive around and be like them. But now I think my favorite is the, is, um, the Mr. Robot show. And it, there is a little bit of love to hate because, you know, the, the hacker is sort of, he's, you know, he sort of has mental problems, right? He's, he, he sees people, um, he's, 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 he's drug addicted, um, and, you know, you don't want to see those stereotypes of all the people who have the skills like that and kind of kind of do things like he does. But I think it's a really great depiction of sort of the mindset of the hacker and really realistic portrayal of the way, you know, you break into systems and, and, and how you can do those things. So that, that's the aspect of it I like. And, you know, part of the other dramatic elements, I guess, are to make it more of an interesting uh, whole well, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Chris Young for a great conversation and to Chris Weisopel for joining us this month. And join us next month when we interview more of cybersecurity's biggest leaders and thinkers. Be sure to subscribe to us on New America's iTunes and SoundCloud at the Cybersecurity Podcast. And we're also on Stitcher, so give us a kind review there. I'm on Twitter at Peter W. Singer. And you can follow me at Sarah Sorcher. Sign up for Passcode at csmpasscode.com. This podcast was directed by John Williams and Amanda Gaines. Talk to y'all in a month. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America and the Christian Science Monitor. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Music thanks to MK2 for their songs, The Big Score, and Cold Killa. To learn more about Passcode by the Christian Science Monitor, please visit passcode.com. .csmonitor.com To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.